Ayo, we are back. We're back. Gr- the Grunge Bible Podcast. It was over, but now we're back. Um, this is episode 89? 91, dude. 91? Oh, yeah, that's right. And this yeah, 90, this is 91. 91 comes after 90. That makes sense. Yep, that is um, generally how it goes, how, my how math, counting goes. If my math is correct. So uh, we're excited. This is a this was a really fun one. We had a good time. Um, I'm doing well. Chris, how are you? I'm doing well. You know the cool thing about 91, 91 episodes? What's that? Joe DiMaggio's hit streak was only 56. <laughs> Hell yeah. We're at 91 games. I mean, Joe D, Jolton Joe, I mean, he, he he hit safely in 56 straight. I mean, we've podcasted successfully in 91 straight. I mean, yeah. what was Joe, Barry Bond's single season record? Like he hit 72? 73 home runs. 73. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. He hit 73. Yeah. Mark McGuire hit 70. Aaron Judge just hit 62. So, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, we're... We're better than all of those. All of those our, re- guys. our records, our records are more. Yeah, we don't miss. Yeah, it's like a perfect it, game so far. Yeah, it's still building too. That's the thing. Like a we're ten not, game perfect. Down. Ten games perfect. Yeah, basically. basically, this is it's fantastic. So yeah, I'm I'm doing well. Um, really, really excited to uh, present this conversation that we have this week. Uh, this is another interview that we recorded um, back in the month of November. So uh, you know, really, really excited to. You know, we wanted to do more interviews and we've been doing a lot more of them and they're a lot of fun. So I hope everybody enjoys listening to them just as much as we enjoy doing them. Yeah, we had a awesome conversation with Tim Sonnefeld and uh, for a lot of reasons, this dude rocks. I mean, yeah, really, really special, uh, special guy, super cool and uh, has the credentials to back up everything uh, that you're about to hear, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And and Tim, th- this was such a great conversation to have. I mean, you, you name it, Tim's done it. Uh, you name it, Tim's good at it. Um, so he's a, a Grammy award-winning producer, engineer, and multi-instrumentalist who now lives in Los Angeles, California, and he works at Red Star Recording. And uh, how this all came to be is um, Tim Sonnefeld is Drew McFadden, our producer's lovely mentor. Uh, they've had a relationship uh, professionally for several years and they've they've played together they played shows together and, and and drew worked with tim for a number of years at red star so that's how this all came together and it was just kind of really cool to you know talk with you know an individual that taught drew a lot because i, I can see a lot of a lot of the qualities that drew has you know they they seem to have come directly from tim and um, it was just really, really cool. And, and once again, another Tim's an East Coast guy, uh, Pennsylvania guy, got some Philly ties. So Ethan, I know you appreciated that. But Oh yeah, we bonded yeah. over that in the episode for oh, sure. Oh yeah, yep. And his resume is really cool. I mean, he, he was a touring musician in a band. Uh, they were signed to a major label for a while. So he's toured relentlessly and successfully. Um, he recorded, he kind of got his start at uh, Milk Boy in Philly, which is a very famous um, studio there. And then, you know, he made the, he made the move out, out West to Los Angeles. And it's just really cool to hear people's experiences and, you know, Tim and his story and his path as we get into it in the episode, kind of hearing about how that came to fruition and how just things kind of the next logical step often presents itself, you know, when you're reaching the end of one chapter. And it's really, really cool to, to hear just the latitude of experiences that he had. And, and Tim's a really, really great guy. This was, um, this was the first time that I was able to have a conversation with him uh, verbally, so it was it was really really cool to uh, to chat with Tim and uh, you know kind of pick the brain of uh, Drew's mentor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the kind of the building of his career, you know, and how everything kind of played off each other and led to 
um, new opportunities and new experiences. And, and yeah, I see, you know, he's very meticulous. Like, you know, he very, like, just like Drew when they're doing stuff, you know, these guys are very OCD and that's what makes them an awesome producer and engineer because they pay attention to the details and, and then, and they believe in themselves. And that was a theme throughout the episode that you'll hear. And, and, um, you know, we have a lot of mentors in, in our world, in the Grunge Bible world, Chris Cafaro, Lederman. There's a few people that are, are higher up that give us a lot of uh, encouragement. And, and Tim has done that for Drew, and, and he did that for us during this episode. So Absolutely. It, was, it, was a nice, it was a nice boost to uh, have that conversation with somebody who, you know, likes what we're doing and believes in, you know, and wants to be a part of the podcast. And so we were jazzed up about that. I mean... Uh, you'll, you'll be able to see in the episode. It was just a really good time. We ripped on Drew, probably not enough. I, I would have liked a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, maybe always, a little, there's maybe always a little, more room for that. We'll yeah, have maybe to, a little harsher, but uh, you know, yeah. we just were running out of time at the end. So right, exactly. And another reason why I really appreciated this conversation, I felt like it was such a good window into the the human element that goes behind uh, creating music and and creating art and kind of managing personalities and and being that confident, um, assuring voice and and kind of getting yourself in the position to be that for other people. Um, It was really, really kind of really cool just to hear Tim's process as to how he arrived at that position to be able to do that. So really excited to present this conversation to everybody. And uh, we're able to have these conversations with people like Tim because of the people who support us, Um, everybody out there who's listening to this at this time, as well as people who have chosen to subscribe, leave nice reviews for us, um, purchase merchandise, um, and especially support us over on Patreon. So we have, uh, as you are familiar with, we have a top tier of Patreon supporters um, who are so kind as to give us $10 a month to help make this podcast run. Um, So at this time, I would like to thank our top level supporters over on Patreon and their names are what the fuck up. Ugh. What the fuck's up, Denny's? Um, Shoe the Shoeless, Seattle 4 fanboy from New Jersey, Rachel Corning, Nikki Six, Millie, Marianne, Lauren Irene, Jamie Lynn, Carlene Salona, Chris LSMS, our number one fan from Australia, Jade Mercado, Granny Grunge, Fuck Soup, Fresh Tendonitis, Faith Bittner, Brother Nature, Captain High Top, Kara Kay, Doug Endy, Christine Shepard, Eddie Vetter got me through my second divorce. The Blue Owl, Alexa Shannon, Alex Long, and Black Hole Sean. Uh, So thank you to each and every one of you for your support. Uh, You know, as we round out this last month of the year, um, this has been a really, really fun year for us. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a later episode, but it really means a lot. Um, You know, when you look back, uh, all of the work that we've done, I mean, the people that support us have been there every step of the way. And we wouldn't have been able to do what we did this past year without those who support us. So really, really thankful for that. Yes, very thankful. So um, check out the show notes and the uh, links in bio if you feel so inclined to jump on board. But let's get to the conversation. So without further ado, here is our interview with Tim Sonnefeld. Absolutely. Hey, a little, little bit of mystery, you know, gets exactly <laughs> plenty good. of mystery. Yeah, it's a, it's good for all of us. So, Ethan, do you want to uh, you, you want to bring oh, us yeah. in for the uh, we're gonna do well, this I was live? Just saying, we'll just we'll just go in right now. Yeah, we have uh, 
Tim Sonnefeld here with us. Uh, my name is Ethan Shalloway. I'm joined with Chris. And uh, yeah, we're really excited. So um, Tim, you were, were connected through Drew, our producer. So you kind of, let's say, produced Drew along the way <laughs> to, to make him where he was uh, when he moved out to L.A. Um, he moved out there to kind of chase a dream and he got connected with you. Um, so we're pretty excited. Um, how you doing today, Tim? I'm doing great. How you doing, Ethan? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing really well, man. I always, nice. I always, we and Chris talk about it. Once we sit down for these interviews and, you know, a few minutes go by, you kind of settle in and you're like, you know, it's, yeah. it's all good. So I'm pretty excited. There's a lot of, a lot of good, um, you know, good people here. So can't wait. Um, yeah, Chris, how about you? Are you good? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. I'm doing a lot better now that we're we're starting and we're gonna have a nice conversation. Absolutely. I was hoping we just wouldn't ask Chris. Yeah, just just yeah. completely ignore me. Yeah, I'm we not usually leave right somebody now. out. Yeah, we usually leave somebody out, but it's the Philly way. Leave somebody out. Absolutely. Yes. So Tim, you are originally. Are you born and raised from uh, in Philadelphia? Yeah, I was born in a little town around Philly uh, called Phoenixville, and then oh, I, sure. uh, I'm, I I didn't know you that close to me. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, I moved to South Philly. I went to college at University of the Arts in Philadelphia and I moved to South Philly then. And I pretty much spent ages 18 to 35 in South Philly. And then I moved out to L.A. when I was 35. And I've been out here for however long that is. 42 minus 35. (laughs) Listeners can (laughs) do the math. math is correct. Seven years. years. Yeah, absolutely. It's been good so far. Yeah, that's super cool. So growing up, um, I I grew up in the Northeast, not Philly, obviously, but I grew up in in Rhode Island. But seems to me that Philly and the 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 area around it, there's there's always been such a great tradition of music. So I want to know, like, with mm-hmm. you, um, when when did you kind of get into music? Um, I guess as being a fan, as as starting to play your own music. Um, what was that process like for you? Like, did you grow up in a family where like your parents or maybe siblings were big into music or a band or a genre? Or did you kind of find your own way with your friends? Yeah, it was, it, it had a lot to do with my family. My mother is just like a huge music fan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Motown stacks, you know, she was always blasting like the Temptations or Stevie Wonder in the car. And then my dad was more of like a rock fan, you know, Zeppelin, Beatles. Um, and then all the way into like weird, like Southern, like Molly Hatchet. Like oh, sort wow. of like Southern metal the and range. shit like that. <laughs> yeah, like he was he was really into a lot of different stuff. And he played guitar pretty he plays guitar pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um and he he you know, probably around like six or seven, I started just really he used to do this thing when I was a really little kid where he would play the chords with his with his like fretting hand and I would strum and we would play like Puff the Magic Dragon or some oh, that's shit, awesome. you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I, when I was sitting, like, it's funny, I have this distinct memory of thinking that I already knew how to play the guitar because mm-hmm. he had fooled yeah, me into thinking Yeah, because you had the strum hand down. Like, yeah, that's all I you got to know. This. this is easy. <laughs> and, then, um, and then he got me a guitar, I think in 86, when I was six, he got me a guitar and I, I think it was just that confidence of like, oh yeah, I know how to do this, that I like, kind of started to figure it out and then he started to teach me more shit so i mean and instantly like i was already a huge beatles fan i would go in to my bedroom and i'd just like try to figure out beatles songs and right fail miserably but still like be like oh this is this is pretty cool um so it was yeah it was pretty early i mean i just always wanted to you know wanted to play the guitar and that was that was the first thing yeah yeah, that's super cool it's 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 always interesting to hear because it's like you have you have people that you know weren't 
introduced to music at all by their family and their family didn't understand anything. And then, you know, you're coming from a family where music was, you know, a large, large part and, you know, you're always listening in the car and your father playing as well. So it's a really, really cool introduction from a young age. So did you have friends growing up in middle school, high school that were also into it? And did you get together with them? Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Like I had, by the time I think I was in sixth, by the time I was in sixth grade, I had a band. Um, and that was, I mean, this, podcast is called the grunge bible so i was excited to do that because that was very integral in my development like i mean 1991 we all know that 1991 was fucking crazy yeah that was the year Um, that it was it was just like i was 11 years old it was i was just getting good enough at the guitar that um and between like 91 and 92 some of the things that took me a little bit of time to discover but like i mean that that first Pearl Jam record, uh, Nirvana's Nevermind. Mm-hmm. Um, what else happened in 91? I think Soundgarden. Sound Go- uh, you had the Chili Peppers yep. even with Blood Sugar yeah, Sex Magic. Exactly. I mean, Blood 1991 was one of the best Huge years record. in terms of album releases for sure. Was Smashing Pumpkins Gish 91 or 92? Gish was 91 as well. You're right. Gish was 91. That was a huge record for me. Um, Rage Against the Machines debut. Yep, that was, was 92. either 91 or 92. Mm-hmm. That was huge. And like that, like, especially the Nirvana record and the Rage record, there's something about the guitar playing on both of those records. I mean, just Tom Morello and Kurt Cobain, just fucking geniuses. And there was this ease, like it was very easy for me to play. Like yeah. I mm-hmm. learned those songs. Like I had every lick on both of those records down within mm-hmm. like an hour of getting the CD, you know? Yeah. And I yeah. was just like, this is, and that was, that was when I really, it really clicked that year. It was just like, right. holy shit, I can do this. Like I sound, I'm as good as Tom Morello. <laughs> and that's what I thought. <laughs> that's Kirk my 11 year old. Yeah, this is easy. But, um, you know, uh, but there was, there was just this like simplicity to, to, and complexity to both of those records, the Rage record and the, and, and Nevermind, the combination of simplicity and just absolute intricacy um, that made me feel like, oh, I'm doing this, yeah. um, you know, and that was pretty, that was pretty important. That's awesome. So did you, so you said your first band was in, when you were in sixth grade. Um, did you start off playing like some heavier rock stuff? Did you, yeah. you kind of obviously play the Nirvana and the Rage type of songs? Or did Exactly. You, I mean, that was, okay. we were basically like a Nirvana Rage cover band. Yep. And then we wrote songs. Oh, yeah. You know, the best. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, it was, yeah. um, and it was, uh, yeah, just, you know, we were called Abacus. It was terrible. It was, I it love was that. Rad. Yeah. But um, yeah, Abacus. you know, we just hung out in my friend Topher's basement, Topher, Topher. Valenti. Shout out. He, uh, he was later a road manager of one of my bands. Um, but we just hung out in his basement and, and like all the girls would come over to his house. He had this huge house in Valley Forge Park and like, we would like put on concerts on his back porch and it was just like girls started looking at us different and it was just like this, this rocks. Dude, being in a rock, I always say that being in a rock band in high school is, you know, I've done some cool things, but I feel like that is the coolest, like that is the epitome of like, you know. I don't know, stardom, like, you know, cause all the kids, they don't have, you know, they don't have, uh, like big bank accounts. They don't have this. They don't have, it's just, they're just yeah. kids and you're just kids. You have no worries either. You're just playing music cause you love it. It's not your yeah. job yet. It's not yeah. your only way of, of, you know, making it to the next level. You're just playing with your buddies who are, you know, trying to graduate high school 
like, oh my gosh, dude, it was the best thing I ever did. And I always tell people, um, I was yeah. gonna ask, yeah, when you started playing with other people, because that's the best thing you can do is when you start an instrument, like you got to practice on your own, but really playing with other people is, that's how I really pushed my, my levels and how I love the drums. Me and Drew started jamming and we just started playing and yeah. you introduce other people and, and you just get addicted to it. Yeah, it's it's it it's intoxicating. It's fun, and then these. I mean, of course, I ended up in the music industry, so of course those skills translate. But I feel like they translate to anything. Like it's team building, it's morale, it's people skills, it's you know, it's all that stuff. Just like right. learning how to interact with people, keep people happy, even when you don't like the bass player's fucking shitty song. Like you're still <laughs> gonna play it because yeah. he's in the band and you're stuck with him and. And you're I don't 15 want to learn and how to can't, yeah. Exactly. I don't want to. Have, I don't want to play the bass. I want to play lead guitar. Fuck you, buddy. Fine, we'll play your shitty song. But yeah. you know, there's something really. And sorry to the bass player from Abacus. because yeah. <laughs> it really yeah, sounds like I'm good. trashing him. Prayers um, up. <laughs> Prayers up but, for him. Yeah, but you know, I mean, uh, I'm just. It's just a hypothetical situation. But um, but yeah, you know, it, it is. It's just. It was. It was. It's the closest thing that somebody like me who was not athletic was going to be. Like, I wasn't going to be the captain of the football team. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was the closest thing to like, oh, yeah, this is the thing I do. And, you know, like all the groups of kids in high school kind of like the kid that plays guitar in the cool band because it's like, oh, okay, he's accepted. Well, Mm -hmm. I have an important question then. So were you the high school's top band or was there a rival band? Because there's always, there's probably usually two. There's always two that are kind of like. There were three. Okay, there were three. Oh, trifecta. There's always like talent shows when talent shows come around. You know, there's a little bit of beef and there's a little something going on. And they were all pretty good. Like everybody, I mean, like none of us were writing good songs, but like the instrumentalists were all like, there was, you know, there were. In, in the other two bands, like the guitar player was pretty good. The drummer was pretty good. Um, so, you know, and, and it was a really friendly rivalry. We all tried to, I mean, we shit talked a lot, but, you know, yeah. we would all play together. We would play get on stage together. with each yeah. other and, yeah, play shows together. And whenever we would put on our, like, weird shows at Topher's house in his backyard, all those, you know, the other oh, yeah. bands would open up for us. We got to be the headliners, though. Oh, yeah, we had, absolutely. We had the back porch, you know? Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Home field advantage. That's awesome. Yeah, it's so awesome. similar. It's, Home all, field all, ex- it's all similar. I feel, Isn't I'm like it funny? Thinking, it's like the same yeah. story over it's and over. It's the same and you, shit, yeah. And you think it's your own. You're like, this is so individual. Like, I'm the only one who's experiencing this. No. There's yeah. 75,000 other bands just like you. Yeah. One time, we played, cr- it, one yeah. time we played a show, just because I'm, I'm thinking about it. I mean, there's another band that... It's not that we did, yeah. It's not that we didn't like them, but they were doing so. They were doing different songs, so they were playing them. Yeah. And they were pretty good. I was like, yeah, if we played that song too, we could, you know, we do it just we do it better. <laughs> so we'd be saying shit. And one time we played a show. It was uh, the the um, classic rock, the rock club, the rock and roll club. There's like a club tenth period that would play, and they put on a show at the one uh, the coffee shop, and and we played, and we didn't with the couple of the guys that were in the club were like in this band so they went on last but so we played and we used their drum set one of the guys is and i remember drew asked him he's like i got this good idea like i'm gonna stand on the drum set like i'm gonna jump up there and stand and i was like that's a fucking awesome idea and and, and i don't know i don't know if he did it before where he just stood on mine but i had an old beater kit so I, it was fine but i remember he jumped on this other guy's kit and like caused a problem and he was like you know he played up there for a little bit and the guy like couldn't believe that he did it and whatnot and 
you know, it was rock and roll. You know, we didn't we didn't really care, but uh, it was it was really funny because I just I remember that specifically. Drew was like, "You think I should stand on?" I was like, "Oh hell yeah, dude!" I was like, "You know, they're going last. They can, I don't know. I mean, yeah, do it." <laughs> I, re- I a similar situation. I remember once um, a kind of rival band at one point borrowed one of my amps, and they were playing <laughs> before us, and. He put it up on a chair so it was a little higher so that he could hear himself better and it fell off the fucking chair oh, and God. then it was broken for our set Fuck. and then I had to use like my beater backup amp that sucked and I was like I tried to be cool but I was like a little bit pissed. I don't think I could hide it. I think I got a little mad at yeah. his name was Matt. And I'm I didn't mean it. I'm sorry, Matt. He was really good. He's still a really good guitar yeah. player. He's Grand a Bible man. podcast is the point where we can atone for all of the wrongs that have happened. Exactly. So glad we're yeah. getting out of that way. It's it's so funny though listening to you <laughs> two go so back and bad. forth about your band stories because I have no musical background in terms of playing. I was certainly not in any bands, but I'm I'm definitely I'm jealous and I'm also I'm noticing the fact that like that time period in your life and like harnessing like music as a passion and as like a communal thing, like it almost, it it feels like it's almost like an intoxicating thing. So like at what point were you, you you're smack dab in the middle of this scene and you're playing and you know, there's a lot of commonalities between everybody's experiences, but at what point, Tim, do you kind of think like, shit, like this is so fun. Like I want to, like, I want to do this. Like I want this to be a part of my life moving forward. Like, was that ever a conscious choice that you made or was it just kind of a natural progression of the bands that you were in and you just started to earn more opportunity? That, that is such a great question. Um, and it's, there's, there's not an easy answer. Yeah. I, I don't think that I really chose it. Like Mm -hmm. that's one pretty significant thing that I think about a lot still. Um, it just, I, I was making music like slight successes were happening in my life through high school, as far as like being a musician. Um, and then when it came time, I never thought about college. I didn't, I didn't give a shit. I was like, uh, you know, fuck. I figured I wasn't going to go to college. (laughs) I was like, um, narcissistic enough to think like I'm going to be a rock star. It's Hell yeah. fine. Right. You know, and then when it came time, like my mother all of a sudden like 3 months before like all the college shit was due, my mom was like, "You got it. What are you doing? You're crazy. You're an idiot." You know, and I'm like, "Oh shit. Okay, mom. Yeah, I guess so." And I applied to one school. I was like, "Oh, you can go to I didn't even think of I was like, "You can go to college for music? That's a thing you can do?" Sure. Yeah. And I was accepted on a very good scholarship into um, University of the Arts jazz program. And I was like, oh, okay, this is this is cool. And then I met four other like-minded people there our first year, and we formed that band Town Hall, um, and we went on the road, like, instantly. So I nice. quit school, and it was, it was really <laughs> easy. But, like, it was just that sequence of events that happened that I really didn't think about. Yeah. I just honestly figured like, oh, I'll go to school. I was assuming I was going to be like a journey at, at the age of 18. I was like, all right, I'll be like a journeyman jazz musician, like touring, playing jazz clubs for a hundred bucks a night, which seemed luxurious to me at the time. I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You get paid a few hundred bucks to play some music. You're like, hell yeah. Oh, yeah. Exa- and, you know, I didn't think about the fact that I'd be living in abject poverty right. <laughs> if, if that was the way that it had gone down but luckily it didn't um but yeah I, I mean it was just and then you know 
Town Hall was briefly signed to RCA, and then all of a sudden I'm getting introduced to all these like incredible, um, legendary producers, engineers, other musicians, and you know, and it just it once again, like you said earlier, intoxicating. Like it was just like holy shit. Like one of the first, the guy that signed us, Brian Malouf, um, he was the vice president of A and R for RCA Records. He mixed fucking under pressure. By no fucking, way. you know, Queen and David Bow, like what the fuck, you know yeah. what I mean? It's and just he's here like, talking to me, wanting to sign my band, and he's like, like, he likes my, and he's talking specifically about our songs, songs that I wrote, yeah. and he's like, I want to demo out this song because I think it, you know, and it was just like, holy shit, this is really, this is what's happening, and it, and it was, um, and I look so back, cool. and if I would have known what I know now, I might not have signed on for the whole thing. Because, you know, I mean, being in the music business is strange work, and you have to end up, like, later on in your life, you have to start figuring out creative ways to make a living, because obviously we got dropped pretty early on mm. into that deal, and, you know, it didn't work out. And But I wouldn't trade it for the world. Right. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the time on the record and, and whatnot. But I, speaking of like when I graduated, it was it wasn't like I'm gonna definitely go and do this. It was like I can't give this up. Like I, you know, I didn't I didn't know what I was gonna do in music, but I knew that like it would always be a part of me. And and I kind of had to ch I chose athletics for the time being, but like I always knew that like I'm not it's it's never going away. And I think for yeah. you, yeah, you just kept the same thing for you. You just kind of you got in the band and just kept going to the next sector of of being involved. Um, yeah, so so I looked up looked up the band and we saw the documentary on on YouTube that you guys have and watched a little bit. <laughs> oh yeah, funny. we cut in. I love those old old footage, uh, the old footage and whatnot. And I'm not gonna lie, I thought the band would be a little more heavy for some reason. I kind of like I said, I pegged you as like a hardcore, but I loved. I mean, the singer's voice is awesome. You guys got yeah. and you had some like dispatch or some sublimey type, you know, kind of hooks definitely and whatnot. Those and really you know really yeah. good guitar work obviously so um yeah how long was that stint for you and like and what was it like making music with and being like that being it was like your soul i mean i'm sure you had other jobs during the time but no we did we didn't we made a living i mean like oh, barely so, yeah but we made a living we toured um our old um road manager Topher, who was my drummer in my first band um, he recently let me know, he was like, you know, we were on the road 300 days out of the year from like 2000 to 2007 or something oh like that. Oh my gosh. And then it started to slow down, but we were, oh. we were constantly on the road. We barely had, you know, we all had, um, we, none it, of us had jobs. Was it nationwide? Did you play, have you played in almost every city? We, we played all 48 contiguous states, nice. you know, awesome. um, and we... We did, I think, and um, man, that was a great. It was a great time. I mean, we we spent a lot of time on the road. It was really fun. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying. It's it. It's weirdly a blur. You know, like yeah. it was. I didn't think it would end. Um, you know, like I I. There was always on the horizon. There was always this other label that wanted to sign us and there was yeah. always this thing you know like there was mm. always this promise of like this is about to happen and mm. it you know it never really did but it was it was amazing um it's funny the so the the town hall that you hear in that documentary is also what we refer to as evil town hall <laughs> um 
which Evil Town Hall was really fun and really great. But um, so George, George Stanford, lead singer of the band, he's amazing. He lives right up the street from me. We still nice. collaborate Sweet. on music together to this day. One of my best friends in the whole world. Um, so me and George and Kevin, the drummer, kind of started the band at first. And then um, and then Mark uh, and, and this guy, Nate Skiles, joined. By the time that documentary was filmed, that was right after Nate uh, took a gig with Amos Lee. Okay. He was Amos Lee's guitar player for years. Mm-hmm. And Amos had just gotten signed to Blue Note Records, and he was a good friend of ours. And Nate was like, hey, guys, this is great and all, but, like, this guy Amos actually has a deal with right. <laughs> Blue Note. And, like, he's paying, like, I don't know what it was, like, probably, like, 500 bucks a gig or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, we were all making... We were literally just making enough to pay the rent and pay for the gas and like buy a round of groceries every week. Like that was about what we were making. Um, And we had a landline. (laughs) Um, And, you know, that was that was what we were getting. So he was like, I really got to like, you know, I'm 27 years old. This is ridiculous piece. Um, And so then we we like kind of regrouped. We hired Dave Strime amazing keyboard player who's actually now currently uh amos lee's piano player um the band there's a lot of uh commonalities between town hall and amos but Mm -hmm. um and yeah and so we you know that was sort of the beginning of the end of that band so the band that you hear there that doesn't really sound anything like the band did right up until about two months before that point yeah um but it, it was weird. I mean, we kind of sounded closer to like the band, like, uh, you know, Leave yeah. on Helm, Take oh, a Load yeah. Off Fanny. That was kind of our vibe. I love that. that kind yeah, of thing. That's super cool. So it's it, yeah. like just this continual process of relentless touring for, you know, several yeah. years. And, you know, like you said, uh, just continuing to find a way to make it happen. You're on the road, you're not really expecting that it would end. So like when when you got to the end, was it was it like... um one of those things where it just kind of did it fizzle out or was it a conscious choice of like, Hey, this project has run its course and you know, we're all going to move on to different things because after that time you started getting into uh, you know, the studio work and and producing and everything. So um, kind of like at that point in your life, like um, seems like I'm, I want to know, like, did it follow the trend of like, Hey, this just makes sense as like, we can continue doing this or was it like a conscious shift for you um, of like, I want to shift from, you know, playing in a band to, you know, studio work. It was, it was really sad. Um, I remember we all actually gathered in my living room in South Philly and we all like sat around a table. And so we had borrowed like, I'm going to say the number wrong, but something to the tune of $40,000 from, um, from this guy that owned a restaurant in the suburbs of Philly who may or may not have been connected, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we had kind of gotten some threats about it, and we were kind of legally looking at options. And, like, continuing under the name Town Hall, we had signed a contract with this guy, and we, um, the record that we made had not sold and it was, you know, we were at this point and, and we were just like, okay, I guess if we dissolve the name of the band, then um, th- we can, you know, maybe we'll be scot-free here. That'll, that'll be good. <laughs> right. Um, he yeah. ended up chasing us down and getting a few thousand bucks out of each of us anyway. 
um, which was sort of weird and scary. But um, <laughs> regardless of that, um, George actually ended up getting in the interim right after we had dissolved the band. George got a record deal with Sony, and then Sony had a huge shakeup, and George's A and R guy moved to Universal. And then uh, he got a deal with Universal, and I wrote and produced some songs on that. And so that was sort of the bittersweet ending of it. You know, like, I mean, it was like, okay, well, we're not going to all be in a van together making music with our best buddies, but at least I get to, you know, do some songs with George, and we get paid really well for it. And right. it was... Made it a little easier. And that was my first major label record that I produced, song wrote, engineer, you know, and that was sort of the gateway for George and I to both get into like the actual music business, not just the like day by day touring, literally killing ourselves on the road right. uh, vibe, you know? So that it was, I don't know. I think that answers your question. Yeah, um, it absolutely yeah. does because it, it makes sense. You know, it's just kind of like I, I think most of the time when, when we make decisions in our lives and, and for the trajectories of our lives, both professionally and personally, it's never a great declaration that I'm going to shift and do this. Mm -hmm. It's like, all right, well, this opportunity is in front of me. Let me go, you know, write and produce some songs for for a friend of mine. And next thing you know, it's like you take on another project, another project, and then, you know, six, eight, ten months later, you're like, wow, like I'm I'm in the music industry now in this capacity. And then you just run with it. Um, I feel exactly. like all of the best, uh, yeah. you know, the best chapters start like that. And especially it's, it sounds like that was a, you know, the smoothest transition possible, because like you said, I mean, you do, you all devoted so much time to town hall and, and so much of your energy and passion, blood, sweat, and tears into it that, you know, anytime something like that, you know, comes to a close. I mean, there's got to be a lot of emotion at play there. So, you know, that's, it sounds like it was a great opportunity for you to kind of, you know, shift gears and still, you know, put yourself into the music just in a little bit of a different capacity. Exactly. That's yeah, that's exactly what happened. It was great. Sick. <laughs> great. Nice yeah. segue, Ethan. I just spoke on behalf of Tim. <laughs> I'm your representative now. <laughs> Uh, um, yeah, so I guess moving into, you know, starting the producing side of your music career, um, obviously like Drew took a, took a risk and moved out. Um, was there like, did you feel like you were taking a huge risk kind of entering in and do you feel like you were behind or was all that experience just really set you up to kind of move in, in like a much more prepared way? Cause I know, I mean, I don't know how much schooling you did with producing or if you had a mentor, like, um, you know, like maybe you and Drew or somebody. So how prepared were you to kind of go in and start working and cutting stuff? And, and how was that initial like grind to get, to get going? Because I know that that's like, just like an artist trying to grind. I feel like producing, you got to put in your time too, before like people really trust, I guess, outside of your close friends and bands. I, I had a really unique situation, um, which I don't, I don't really know anybody else in the music industry that ended up coming into producing full-time the way that I did. Um, I was really lucky. There was There's this amazing studio in Philadelphia. It's still there. They've they've moved to North 7th Street in the city, but at the time they were in Ardmore. It's a studio called Milk Boy, and um, Milk Boy the studio. And uh, the owners, Tommy and Jamie, um, I we had made the final town hall record there. 
okay. um, which was the record that we had borrowed $40,000 from guys who were connected. Yeah. And um, so we, I already knew them. They had already watched me produce a record because I produced that town hall record. Um, me and George co-produced it. Um, one of the owners, Tommy, had engineered it. And so he had watched me work. He had seen that I kind of knew what I was doing, at least. And when they heard that Town Hall was going to stop touring and that we were about to make George's major label debut, he was like, hey, uh, do you want to be a staff producer here? Um, and so I, w- I was like, of course. And so they started giving me clients. And so oh, wow. there's this there's this innate trust that happens when a when a client walks into a like professional recording studio and there's an enormous console and huge speakers and guitars hanging everywhere they trust you kind of you know it's just like oh yes this is a professional environment this guy guitar has the trust yeah. <laughs> this guy has the trust of the people who own this building or whatever right. so obviously he can produce my music so i had this really cool leg up and you know, local Philadelphia musicians who, I mean, I can't say enough good things about the Philadelphia music scene. The, you know, the talent level is just amazing. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, local Philadelphia musicians started coming. Um, you know, when the Roots had their little thing where they kind of uh, got the Kimmel show or is uh, the Fallon show. Mm-hmm. Um, when they got the Fallon show, uh, Leonard Hubbard, their original bass player, left the group and he came, he just happened to walk into that studio and be like, I want to make a record. And I happened to be the guy who was sitting there at that moment. You know, it's just like all these incredible things. That happened, I think, in 2007. And uh, so all these incredible things happened just because I was in this place that was respected, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and it wasn't my talent. I mean, at that point, honestly, I had no fucking idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But it was like, you know, people trusted me. Yeah, so it it sounds like the perfect situation where you were given that level of trust and you were given that um, kind of latitude to learn and to grow and to, like you, you just said that it wasn't one of your, it wasn't a talent of yours when you first began, but I'm, I'm sure in the years to come, because you were given that room to grow and you were given that, that trust by the owners that it did become one of your talents, because I feel like there's probably got to be a level to it that, you know, you only really, you can only learn so much without doing and that the best learning about this, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and the best practice just comes through actually doing it, I would assume. Right. 100%. And that Mm -hmm. was, um, yeah. And that was, and I had done some producing and some engineering, um, before then and a lot of session musician work, but it wasn't until it was like, the focus of my life and and that it was kind of like well i mean if you don't want to start you know looking for a job right you're going to have to make enough money doing this to survive so fucking get your shit together bro yep um and you know and it was yeah it was exactly like that yeah that is that is definitely a unique and and like we said i think it kind of echoes that theme of like it was the you know, based off of the interactions and the, and in, in your path so far, it was, it was the step that, you know, laid itself out in front of you and, and that you were, you know, because of the work that you put in prior to that, you were able to take that and take advantage of it. Now you were with Milk Boy for several years until you moved to Los Angeles. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, absolutely. I was making music there for a long time. Incredible yeah. place. And do you I have still... any, um, yeah. Do you have any favorite memories or favorite, uh, lessons that you learned from your time at Milk Boy? Oh, 
plenty. Um, yeah. a, good, right, a good story, I guess, is what we're asking <laughs> yeah, for here. It's, it's, it's good story time. Um, let me... I, I need to find one where I don't talk any shit or name any names. Let's let's come back. I'll be thinking about a good one, yeah, and yeah. we'll come back to it. I'll figure one out, because I'm thinking of one, and I don't know how to tell it without talking right. shit. Um, well, so what I was, another question I was going to ask, because, you know, just contrast the East and the West Coast. So not only the, like, you know, if you could speak on the difference in music scene, but also the difference in artists that you kind of ran into for Philly, like the Philly music scene, producing people in Philly and then going to L.A. and then you have a whole different clientele and it's a whole different pace. So um, how much different is because how much different is that? And um, is it what you expected when you moved out there? I mean, did you know that you had to go out to L.A. or do you think that like do you ever think like I could have, you know, I could have kept doing it in Philly or something like that? But with the differences that come to your head. A big difference, and I hope I hope a lot of fellow Philadelphians hear this podcast, and I hope that they don't take what I'm about to say the wrong way, um, because <laughs> I will, love Philadelphia. Will. They will. Yeah, yeah I, know, will. I know my people. I know you fucking jabronis. All right. <laughs> right. So um, jabroni, I love that. So one. you know, in Philly, there's the talent pool is just so amazing, and there's this like sort of like small town mentality that Philly almost has where I think a lot of the musicians there, they just love making music and they make music with the people that they've been making music with in Philly forever. And they don't think of it on a national or a global scale. They're like, Mm -hmm. I'm just making, just making my little local record and that's what we're doing. And it sucks because I think that the talent pool in Philly is world-class and there's something about it where a lot of the people aren't taking themselves seriously enough. Yeah. I know a lot of people in Philly that do. But That's a good way to put it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And when you're here in LA and you're making music, the goal is to reach the world. You yeah. know, like every record that I'm making out here, usually the artist is believes in themselves a hundred percent. They're like, I'm a fucking star. I'm doing that. And, and there's something really incredible about that. I believe in the law of attraction and I believe that when you put yourself in that position and you say, I'm making this music for the world, you're much more likely to reach the world than when you're just like, ah, yeah, this is, it's cool. Yeah, me and my buddy Bill fucking made some cool songs. Awesome. Yeah. It's a great you time know? great time in my life, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so that's, I think that's a big uh, difference about the way, and I th- and it's the thing that, was that I was conscious of and that I think I'm, I was guilty of in Philly just being like, ah, you know, yeah. I would always kind of do this thing where I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm just here in Philly. And especially in the early days of Milk Boy, we weren't in the facility that they're in now. Um, it was a little bit of a mom and pop shop. It was a beautiful studio, world-class equipment, but I kind of thought of it as like, oh, you know, like if I was in if I was in New York at Avatar Studios or if I was in L.A. over at the Village Studios, I could make a record that really sounds like the records. that. But, yeah. you know, here, I don't know if I... And I could. I could make a fucking world-class sounding record. I ended up making some world-class sounding yeah. records there. But I didn't understand the difference between those two things for a little bit of time. You know what I mean? It took mm. me... There was a learning curve. Yeah, yeah. people so, love the mom-pop shops, but then it's also like it can be like a ceiling because you want to keep it that... You want to stay small enough to have that feel where it's like, 
Yeah. yeah. I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great um, comparison. The ceiling. I mean, that's that's sort of a word I was searching for during that whole explanation. It's like there isn't a ceiling when you're making music anywhere, right. but for some reason you think that there is. And yep. uh, and I even know people out here in LA that I, that are extremely talented, and I don't think they believe in themselves enough, and they put a ceiling on it. Well, like, oh, well, this is just some stuff I'm working on. It's no, man. It's fucking. It's the shit. It's the, you mm-hmm. know. It's if you believe in it and you push it hard enough, it's hard to push something that you don't believe in too. Right. Like yeah, it's exactly. hard to be proud of something that you made if you're like, it's okay, you know. And people feel that when you. Um, I was just in the studio actually the other day. I was at an incredible legendary studio that I won't mention because I don't want anybody to know who I'm talking about. <laughs> um, but an artist came in, this incredibly talented artist, and she um, she wasn't involved with our session, but she just had heard some of the stuff and was interested and came in, plugged in her phone, played a few songs, and like she would start playing a song and like, a minute into the song, she'd be like, yeah, that's kind of that. And she'd hit stop. And it was like, no, like we want to hear this. Number one, it's really good. Number two. And it's kind of obvious that you don't believe it. Number three, because you're stopping it. And that gives me a little bit of pause Mm. just as far as like, what are you, what are you doing? Um, anyway, but I'm not trying to talk shit. Once I, once again, this person was extremely talented and I hope that she figures that out because it's, you know, I feel like that's something that can hold people back. Yeah, absolutely. So was this realization that you had, um, you know, in this desire to kind of work with people who, uh, you know, had a mentality different than what we were talking about of like the the mom and pop type thing, was that um, a driving force behind your move to Los Angeles to go out to work with Red Star? Or um, was it just kind of, uh, you know, an opportunity that you had? Um, Moving out to L.A., Red Star just happened to happen. I mean, I just knew this guy, David Kalish, who's an mm-hmm. incredible, legendary session musician. Um, he's currently playing keyboards with Social Distortion. He's on the road with them cool. as we speak. Yeah. Um, just a, and he's a, by trade, he's a session guitar player, but he's a good enough Hammond organ player and piano player that they're like, you're our guy. He's great. Um, I just knew him through various other things. Um, uh, this woman, Sharon Little, that I made a lot of music with, mm-hmm. um, he had played guitar when she toured with Robert Plant and Allison Krauss. He was her guitar player. Um, I, I, and he's from Philly, actually, too. So I knew him through a million different things. Red Star was just kind of an extra little bonus. Uh, you know, every time I came out here to L.A. to work, I would see David and he'd be like, hey, you know, if you ever end up in L.A., like, you're always... Welcome to be maybe a staff producer here or, you know, we can work something out. And so that was nice to know that I had maybe a landing spot when I got out here. But um, honestly, moving to L.A., it was, uh, you know, necessity being the mother of invention. Um, The Philly music scene hit a really weird little slump around 2014, 2015, around when I moved. Um, And I think... A, a lot of my work had been kind of supplemented by the roots, just the amazing um, hip hop and neo soul scene that was in Philly because of them. This whole scene that they had cultivated, mm-hmm. when they left, that scene started to drift to New York. Okay. And 
I kind of woke up one day in 2014 and looked at my calendar and I was like, holy shit. Like, I don't really like anything that I'm working on. And I, and I, that's not true. There was definitely shit that I was working on but that I liked. But a lot of the stuff I was working on I liked, I wasn't getting paid much or anything for. Um, but it was kind of this thing where I was like, holy shit, like, I'm not really making a good living right now because all of the really great um, neo-soul hip-hop R&B work that I was have been doing has now moved to New York. They took that scene with them, and I either have to move to New York or L.A. right now. And L.A. just had a few more connections for me. So yeah, that was it, was it was a necessity thing. It was like... It was like, once again, I've had a few moments in my career where it's just like, all right, Tim, do we keep doing this or yeah. do we just like try to get like a traditional career? And, uh, you know, and that was one of those moments. And I'm very glad that uh, it went the way it did because I'm yeah. glad to still be in the music industry. Well, it kind of brings up another question I wanted to ask. When you're working with music, and I'm sure your selection process has changed over the years, but it sounds like, you know, the neo soul and, and R&B and hip hop, that's kind of like your um, in your Q zone. That's what you really like to work with. Am I correct? Q zone. Is that right? Like that was, that a, was that was that I think you should leave reference? Yes. Or was that, yeah. It's like your right. Q zone. You're going to be a star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're going to be a star. He's like, come it's on. So in my Q zone. Dude, um, oh, man. You are right. We are right on the same path. Yeah, we're on it. the same wavelength. <laughs> God, what a great shout show. Out, shout out to Tim Robinson for all the people out there that know him. <laughs> yes. But, um, yeah, so it's <laughs> your Q zone. Hip hop and, uh, and RB has always felt very in my Q zone. It always, it, that, it always made a lot of sense to me. Um, I was also lucky um, early on, around the same time that I started playing in bands. Uh, there was also this really awesome guy, um, Ernie White, who kind of uh, got me into the Philly church scene, like uh, the black church scene. And I got to make music. I was invited into that space to make music there. And it was just a life changing experience. And all of that translated very well to R&B, neo-soul. Just it's a whole different vocabulary from rock and roll where I had been before totally. then. Um, and, you know, and still, I just still have so many connections from that world that are so incredible. And um, yeah, so speaking to that, yes, that yeah. shit is in my Q zone. Yeah. <laughs> and it, and uh yeah, I mean, I've been so lucky. I've, I've been able to make, you know, really cool R&B, um, hip-hop, gospel records. One of my earliest records um, was a record for this legendary uh, gospel group called the Dixie Hummingbirds. Um, I don't think I would have had the any idea how to make that record had I not been invited into the church scene yeah. um, early on in my life. Um so nowadays, do you kind of like, um, yeah, like when people come to you, is it kind of like, oh, you should you should actually go to say and then you know, give one of your buddies like go work with them. They have a they have a better sense for that type of music. Or how do you kind of go about choosing who you work with nowadays? Or did you ever feel intimidated working in different different genres slash genres that you weren't as excited for? A hundred percent. I mean, I still feel intimidated as a matter of fact the last three days i just worked 
with a little production collective uh, that I'm working for. And uh, one of the guys is really big on the smooth jazz scene. Mm -hmm. And I realized I've never made a smooth jazz record. And uh, the assistant, we were talking and the assistant engineer asked me like, well, what would you do if you had to make a smooth jazz record right now? And I'd be like, I'd hire him yeah. <laughs> because he knows what the fuck he's doing. And yeah. then, you know, maybe I'd learn what I was doing on the job. And there's still a lot of that. I mean, you know, being, I've been doing production at this point for about 20 years, probably, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But still, you know, if I find myself uncomfortable in a situation where I yeah. am doubting my abilities, I'll always, if the budget allows, I'll hire somebody that I know actually knows what they're doing and yeah. I'll do my best to learn from them at on the job. Yeah. There's still a lot of on the job learning every day, honestly. Yeah. Uh, everything's a little different. So I feel like, yeah, that makes sense. And, yeah. And yeah, there's so many different, um, yeah, different, in, in, um, yeah, variables with the different genres that I'm sure that you don't interact with when you're working with certain, yeah, other genres. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I I recently, there's been a lot of country music that's kind of come my way recently, and it's something that I wasn't, um, I've always been enamored with country guitar and, and you know, and I, I can chicken pick enough and I yeah. can, you know, I can like play decent country guitar, but I hadn't made a whole lot of country music. And then all of a sudden I'm making a lot of country music and I'm a hundred percent learning on the job and I'm just lucky that like a lot of the session musicians that were already in place for some of these projects were just legendary country pickers. And so it was like, I can just lean on them and you know, it's good. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think just like one of the other themes, it's like always um, wanting to and always having the opportunity to kind of add different things to your toolbox and, and you know, acclimate and get acquainted with different areas that you, you might not have had experience with, or you didn't think you would have the opportunity to have experience with. And I think one thing about that is, I mean, covering all of these different genres, all of these different geographic areas, you know, people from all corners of the States, all corners of the globe, probably even, um, it's got to be at different times. It's got to be a little challenging, and you've probably, you know, had different experiences and varying degree of difficulty of kind of managing the different personalities that you might be working with. Because obviously, everybody's got to be different, and I'm sure that your experiences as a musician in a band, you know, like we said, playing, you know, 300 nights a year, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, learning people skills, learning, you know, to interact with crowds and different people. Like, I'm sure that had to help you, but is that, is that still kind of a constant battle or something that you always have to be aware of is just managing all of the personalities and, you know, getting everybody on the same page to, to create the best product possible? 100%. I mean, I think most of the job of producing music is actually psychology. Mm -hmm. you, like you're trying to keep the morale up like a, most recording sessions are 10 hours long um yeah. it's kind of a long day that's a lot of time right and um and every artist no matter how successful they've been is going to have some self-doubt within that day right um and managing an artist's self-doubt trying to be a cheerleader for them as much as you can and try to like make sure that they um you know that they feel good 
about what they're doing, even to the point where I've made the um, the mistake or what's the opposite of a mistake? Because, you know, obviously. What, what's that? I just said the success of something. Like I've the... made the success and the mistake <laughs> yeah. of dating some singers that I've worked with. Mm. And, um, and one of them in particular uh, had a very funny habit of being like, so wait, when you're producing me, you're actually manipulating me into thinking that I did a good performance. And I'm like, well, yes. So, yeah, maybe on the first few takes, but right. like you're really great. So eventually you're giving a good performance. <laughs> but yeah, maybe first take, I might be manipulating you. And then she's like, well, how can I trust you now, though? And I'm like, I guess you're right. <laughs> um, you know, so there's, there's definitely... Uh, there's a lot of psychology and there's a lot of, you know, just, just trying to, I don't know. It's, 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 it's really hard. It's really hard to make a really good record and it's really hard to get a really breathtaking performance out of musicians, singers. Um, and then like the fucking lawyer walks into the room and then he starts talking about how he doesn't like the bridge. And it's like, what the fuck are you yeah, doing it's here? Like you're, you out know, your like, depth, you're out of your element. <laughs> you know, like it's, yeah, managing all the personalities within a, a studio setting and um and you know, just the whole the whole thing is really you know, it's I love it. And I and I even love the challenge of like trying to make personalities work together. Yeah. Um I just had a nightmare session where okay, here we go. Here's a story I think one. I can tell and I won't tell any I won't name any names. Uh so th- we hired three background singers, um, and I knew one of them very well. Mm-hmm. And I know that she's the kind of person that tries to take charge of the session. Um, and in addition to these three girls, we hired um, this guy who is legendary as a choir director. And he's a Hammond organ player, choir director, incredible. And we were like, all right, you're going to arrange these vocals for these girls and you're going to kind of coach them. And we kind of expected him to sing with them, but it was very obvious when the singers walked in that uh, they didn't want him helping in any way, shape or form. And the one singer girl was just trying to take over the Mm -hmm. session in a way. And it, it sucks because it would have just been me and the singers. I think it would have gone really well. And I think, cause I've handled this girl's, um, this woman's uh, tendency to take over things. I've handled that before, and she's a really great singer, and um, and we work well together in the end. But the combination of her and this choir director was oil and water, and it it just didn't, you know. And by the end, the girls are like, "Okay, blah blah's name." You're not allowed to come in the room and tell us what to sing. You have to tell Tim what to tell us to sing. And then I and then I ended up in a situation where I'm like translating. Yeah. Um I don't know if that I, I feel like I, I went off topic a little bit, but I was thinking back to like a good studio story. It I mean it was hell. It was, you know, like the singers mm. were supposed to be there for two hours. We were all there till four in the morning. And nothing got done. Like yeah. no good work got done that day. And it was all because I was managing personalities and I was managing personalities that I knew weren't going to work. And also I have enough experience. I turned to the client, uh, the songwriter, 
And I turned to him about two hours into the session. And I said, we've lost control of this session. I'm just letting mm. you know, nothing's going to get done today. Mm. And he's kind of newer to the industry. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to go give him a pep talk. And I'm going to fix everything. Bright eyed and bushy tailed. And I love him for that. I was like, you go ahead. You do that, buddy. And, you know, and then literally nine hours later at four in the morning, the third background singer had quit for the 10th time. And we're like, all right, this didn't work. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. It, it's I mean, got to be. so many stories like that. I too. can only imagine yeah. just like the, uh, you know, necessity to be the one person to try to keep everybody on the on the right chart, on the right charted path when, you know, everybody's yeah. pulling, pulling away from that path. And um, one other thing as well, you know, it seems like a lot of it is just kind of you know, helping to be that push to instill confidence in people who, you know, are dealing with varying degrees of self-doubt. So, you know, having to be that person, are there ever times where it's like you may have self-doubt about, you know, your ability to 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 produce a quality session or your ability to um, keep everybody on the same path? And, and how do you manage that? Because it's, it's it could be a lonely spot at times, I bet, being the one person that everybody turns to. And it's like, if you're like, oh, well, like, this is not going to maybe be as good as it can be. You just kind of have to deal with it or it's got to be a tough spot. Once again, I hearken back to another answer I gave um, where, you know, like when I'm in the moment, when I'm actually with an artist, I'm with a group of musicians, Mm -hmm. narcissism just takes over. I have no self-doubt when Mm -hmm. I'm in the studio and to a terrible degree, to the point that it's, definitely unhealthy, but like I, and I'm definitely fooling myself, but I have nothing but confidence. I get home that night and the self-doubt creeps Mm -hmm. in, but luckily I have like some sort of defense mechanism within my brain that keeps me from feeling that when I guess it's like adrenaline or I don't know what it yeah, is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of like a, like a fight or flight response because like right. when you step into that arena, yeah. like you have to be the guy and like you have to, yeah. you have to believe that you're the guy and know that you're the guy because that's what people are looking for you to be. So it's been recently that I've really been reflecting on it, which mm. is probably dangerous. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, might don't learn do that. Something. <laughs> I might learn something about myself, but and we wouldn't want that. No. But, um, <laughs> I'm not have to tell my therapist, but um, <laughs> yeah, like it's it's been kind of recently that like literally I get home and I like turn on a show and I eat a little weed gummy and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, oh shit, yeah, am I even capable of handling what's gonna happen tomorrow? <laughs> you know, and it's like sh- okay, well I, I don't know, but you know, has I mean, that gotten as as- hard? Has that gotten easier or harder as the years? Then like, did you? Does it feel, are you more critical of yourself now than you were when you first started or is it got, are you just, yeah, basically, are you more critical with your work now? I'm more self-aware now. I don't know if I'd say critical because specifically, like, I, I've always been critical, but once again, like, I feel, I look back at me in my 20s and my early 30s and i think about how i didn't i didn't believe that i deserved to be on the national scale or the world you know i didn't believe that i was world class um god damn it are they really going to do the fucking they're going to do the thing where they leaf blow right now mm. so oh man it, it, it might get really bad in here if, it, if you guys hear that it got too bad let me know anyway 
I yeah, like Drew I will fix it. No. I yeah, come on, Drew. RX that shit, bro. This yeah, whatever you do, come on. You gotta show up. Um <laughs> I love shit talking Drew Just when wait. we know he's gonna hear it. Oh yeah. We're getting <laughs> so there. Good. We're getting there. Um But yeah, like I, I didn't believe that I was world class. Um and even in saying that, hearing myself say that I may or may not be world class feels like a strange thing to say about myself. But it's just, you know, as long as people believe in me and are paying me money to make their music, I have to believe that about myself. Because right. other, otherwise, what, what is any of this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll yeah. go into a complete existential crisis if I let myself <laughs> think about that too far. No, it makes but, yeah. a lot of sense. And I, I think that level of awareness kind of only comes with, you know, all of the experience that you have in the industry. And I mean, you're a, a jack of all of the trades of the music industry and you have so much experience. So, you know, with, with that in mind, you know, I mean, I think music has such an allure for people and there's a lot of people that want to in some way, shape or form, make a career out of music or have music be a part of their career. So, you know, with all of your experience and the things you've learned, are there any, um, you know, token pieces of advice that, you know, when people come to you for mentorship or, you know, you, you meet a a young person in the studio, um, you know, that are there a couple of things that, you know, uh, you can give people to lean on or just different flagships that, uh, you know, of advice. It's different for everybody, but I, I do end up in a lot of like moments of mentorship with mm-hmm. people. Um, I mean, I, I mean, Drew knew what the fuck he was doing and, uh, you know, but like there was certainly a level of mentorship with him. Yeah. Um, the, the guy who's kind of doing what Drew did, uh, you know, his successor right now, uh, this much really better. talented kid named Jack. Um, what, what was it? I said what he's I like much better than Drew. He's like way better <laughs> than like, Drew. Yeah, he's like way, like way, way easier to work with. Let the Drew roasting begin. <laughs> Absolutely. But, um, but actually, like last night, we finished up a session around two o'clock in the morning. It was an awesome session that went very well. But um, still, it was kind of grueling. It, You know, we worked like 10 a.m. to 4 in the morning. It was a long day, and um, and we had a lot of fun. Um, but, like, at the end of the day, I, I mean, I was kind of giving him... We were actually talking about another artist that we had worked with a, little, a few days previous, and we were talking about how that specific artist had very obvious self-doubt things. Right. And at one point I said something, and it, it triggered uh, my friend Jack to say... Like, well, what does that say about me? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And and it turned into like a, you have to believe in yourself. Like you do have this thing. You have a lot of talent and you and you belong here. You're here for a reason. You belong here. And, uh, you know, and I, yeah, I, it, it's different for everybody. But yeah, I, I give a lot of pep talks. I, I love pep talks. It sounds like, um, and I was going to say the same thing, like any any advice for, you know, artists or young producers or even people like us who are doing anything with sound and like you know doing a podcast and i think chris I think what he's trying to say is we shouldn't doubt ourselves when we're doing this exactly no <laughs> yeah. i mean look at you guys top. how many so where where's your um i don't know much about the podcast i've just talked to drew about it but i really need to dig in like where's your biggest following what social media is your biggest following on on this podcast well, the Instagram page is the biggest. We have almost 400,000 followers. But when you take the podcast, we're 
you know, by the time this will come out, we're over 90 weeks in. We do every single week. Um, we have a weekly listener base of about, you know, six or 7,000 people. So we've built it up into a, you know, a consistent model. And, you know, it's just Steady. one of those things that I think, um, you know, we're always trying to get better and we're always trying to, you know, just provide a good product for people because I think we like to make this for people who are like us, who have similar passions. And I, and that's why we love talking to people who have similar passions, you know? 400,000 is amazing. I mean, like, so there we go. And yeah, I mean, you're, you're obviously doing the fucking right thing. And, and if 400,000 people believe in it and give a shit, then that, I mean, that the proof's in the pudding. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah, it's been fun. I mean, it's just been we've been really consistent with it. But I think that sometimes we we, we talk about it on air too. So like, yeah, I don't know when this thing's going to crash and burn. But, uh, you know, <laughs> we, we make we joke about it all the time because that's what you do. And, you know, but that's we're from Philly. Yeah. You and I are from Philly. And I feel like especially just, you know, following Philly sports for so long, you and I just went through two. Yep. Very crushing moments. <laughs> yeah. um, we're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, are you still oh, yeah. a Philly sports fan? I am. Yeah, I have. I mean, it's. I, I grew up in a weird. Uh, my my dad was a Cowboys fan when he was younger, so he and like Bye. My, my later. I know. Yeah, so I know, like, calls over. So like my cousins <laughs> and all my 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 cousins and my close friends, like everybody's diehard Eagles fan. My dad just didn't doesn't like them, so it's a yeah. weird like split. But I I'm like I love the Philly sports. I love. The idea that you know it's like we climb we flew too close to the sun you know we oh, yeah. burned up that was what it was <laughs> well that like, well that's the thing a, another philly friend of mine who's out here now he lives in san francisco but he, he's like he's from jersey actually but he was like isn't it fun? like when you grow up around us i think it's because of philly sports you're yeah. constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop yeah and you just said it about your own podcast you're like i mean we all know it's gonna crash or whatever <laughs> you, you know it's it's funny it's a it's an innate thing and of course i have it too you know and yeah. like it's like that crate challenge where everybody's like climbing to the top and you just video it because you know something's gonna happen yeah, yeah. Like, we're gonna keep going you know you're gonna fall it's just a matter of when which crate <laughs> exactly but um, i guess what i try to tell myself and I try to tell all of my clients is that despite the fact that I know <laughs> so deep in my soul that that is true, the other shoe is going to drop. You can't believe that. Yeah. You, like you actually can't live your life believing that. Yeah. And it's a weird thing that I think that Philadelphians, like we do that to ourselves. Um, do people from everywhere do that to themselves? I don't know. Because I meet a lot of people. Also in the music industry, you meet the funny people who you're like, I can't believe that guy believes in himself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. This shit is terrible. He has no talent. And nope. here he is Unlo dropping... Unloading money. And <laughs> dropping six <laughs> figures on a few weeks in the studio. And it's... What? He and he blindly believes in himself that much. How do I have self doubt? Mm -hmm. And I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I do think. I mean, like, I mean, you know, jokes aside, I mean, that's definitely a common theme of everything we've talked about. And that is, if you put your mind to it and you, you got to believe it, that's the best way to get to where you want to go. And it's 100%. always, and that's always going to I mean hard work is really important. You know, talent is really important, but simple belief and like, and just knowing that it's going to work out and you're going to get to where you want. That's how you get to where you want to go. And that's why I always, 100%. I mean, you know, I'll give Drew some props. That's why I loved working with him and playing with him. He always pushed his guitar ability to be in, being like Eddie Van Halen and, and, you know, 
trying to be like those guys and then moving out. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to move out to LA. I did the same thing. Like I moved twice to get to Alabama where I'm, you know, doing athletics and, um, yeah. What's your, what's your sport, Ethan? I'm a javelin thrower. So I'm training for the 2024 Olympics. I'm not on the team, but I'm going, I'm going, I'm going to make, I'm going to be a, I'm going to make the team in 2024. I I just missed it, but but that's how I moved. I went to Pittsburgh and then Kentucky and then I moved here. So I'm doing the same thing where it's like, I always said, if I, if I didn't do athletics, I'd be doing the same thing in a band trying to make it big. But right right now it's athletics. So. Wow. That's incredible. What a, like, how, like, what's the pool of javelin? I'm I'm sorry. I turned into the interviewer for a second. I'll I'll move out of this for a second. We called it. We knew this was going to happen. That's all good. (laughs) What's the pool of like javelin? Like how many javelin throwers are there in the U.S.? Ballpark. Counting the, I mean, college scene, I don't Hard to say. I don't. Uh, what do you think, uh, Chris? Probably like. I mean, there's got to be a couple thousand. I mean, yeah, maybe five thousand. Five thousand. That that decided I mean, to pick you're, it up. And you're you're number five. In the U.S., yeah. Yeah. So five out wow. of five thousand. I mean, that's all the proof you need, you know. Yeah. But more. No, and that's. Yeah, I, it's that's, it's tough because it is. I guess it's more of a Europe. It's more of a European event. Like there's a lot more throwers over there, but. I finished ranked number 61 last year in the world, which is pretty cool. That's great. Yeah, as you can hear, the guy's right next to oh, me. Yeah, he's building right he's now. He's ripping He'll... away. Right when we're on, on the emotional moment right here of, I know. of belief, this is, you know, this guy is, this is uh, yeah. just hammering away out there. But, it's, you know, let's... it's also a good moment to lean into Ethan's javelin throwing. I, you know, I don't know how much of, because then we can use his mic a lot. Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. This be good. Um, I mean, that's, that's how, crazy. That's, that's, wow. Yeah, that's how Chris and I bonded over music a lot because he was he was uh, also a track and field athlete, and you know, working out and listening to Rage Against the Machine obviously is synonymous or Soundgarden. So yeah, that type of music I think in you know waking up early like we kind of got connected with that music. Same thing in high school. Like we did a lot. I think we both just working out and. I don't know, the, through the high school grind, I guess. But it's always nice to pair those two athletics yeah, and music and, together. Yeah, and it is cool. It's like, I think anybody, like anybody, no matter what what area it's in, like anybody who's had enough guts to like believe in a dream and, and take a shot for it, I think exactly. you, everybody kind of has that common understanding. It's like, okay, well, like you, you've done it too. You're doing it too. Um, and, and definitely, you know, speaking back to like what Ethan, what you said with Drew and, and the band that you guys were in, like Drew's, Drew's that person for this show. Like, I mean, he's more often than not, he's the one out of the three of us, myself, Ethan and Drew, Drew's always the one who's like, guys, like, this like this is something like you guys have something here like you guys like there's room to grow here and there's like there's higher heights that we can reach together where you know and it's funny and and I think it makes more sense with all of the time that he spent with you at Red Star and those oh, experiences yeah. of kind of being that person to stay the course like he does that for us and like the 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 lines are just beginning to connect for me that it's no surprise um you know having spoken with you for the last hour or so and and talking to Drew like he embodies so much of those qualities and, you know, we're really grateful to, to have him there because I, I think with us, Ethan, like we've had those times where it's like, well, shit, like, uh, you know, we got to do another one. Like it never stops. And like, you know, what's the, what's the point or whatever, but yeah, Drew, Drew does a really good job with that. Absolutely. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and it is, it's really hard to like do that thing where you've got to like, yeah, you've got to put out content yeah. all the fucking time. And mm-hmm. it's, and it, it it's honestly you guys have you guys absolutely know what it's like to be in a 
band or to be like a solo artist right now. That's what it's like. Mm. Like you have to yeah. continually put out product. You have to continually push merch, be push this. engaging on social media. You have yeah. to be, you know, it's pretty crazy. I'm just apologizing to yeah, all the listeners ripping. right now about the so that's right. fucking. That's, that's life, though. Sometimes the <laughs> yeah. session, you know, something will happen, and we you got to keep believe. everybody. We got to believe that you just got to believe that, be that they'll stop weed whacking. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sometimes that's what you have to do, but yeah. it, it is cool. And and this is like, I mean, this conversation that we've had is exactly why I enjoy doing this because I think, at least selfishly, like these conversations are super illuminating. And I think there's a lot, um, you know, whether you're in everything. the music industry. Yeah. Or not that you can apply to most anything that you do. And I mean, these are lessons of, you know, once you've walked the path, I mean, there's a lot of value and a lot of things you can learn it's from people that have done it. It's the corniest advice. Like how many times believe do you have to hear somebody say like, believe in yourself right? before you're just like, who cares? But <laughs> it's like, it sounds so fucking dumb. And especially like the, in the music industry, the whole thing is like, you have to be cool all the time. You have to like, dress cool and you have to look cool and you have to have cool looking guitars and it's the fucking corniest thing ever to hear like no just believe in yourself but it's so fucking true it's like it's embarrassing how true it is (laughs) yeah it's like they were right all along with that bullshit cliche that they spoon fed us it's like exactly (laughs) fuck they were right (laughs) i can't believe they were right (laughs) yeah so So weird i got uh i guess i have like well one more thing and then uh you know we'll we can talk more about Drew, but uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, it's funny because we're having this whole conversation. And I know a lot of people listening don't probably know what engineering, producing and type of um, and what all goes into it and how like I, I love, again, talking to Drew and he's talking about what he hears and stuff he's, and, and how he hears it differently. Now they start to do that. Um, yeah. And I'm not, you know, we're not going to try and dive into trying to explain that in any way that, you know, it's good. I know that's a rabbit hole, but. So in simplest terms, how can you talk about, say, one of the albums from 91 or 92 or 93, talk about what the, like, say, what the, like, Steve Albini or something, what what kind of stuff did they do to enhance those records, right? In, like, simple terms, like, what is what is the job when you have a rock band and, and how did it kind of take those albums and really help? Because I think, you know, like I said, without going too deep into it and, like, so which one would be your favorite and why or even broader? You just brought so. up Steve Albini. I think that's just such a that's such a great guy to start with because I think that everything about him is so fucking perfect. Um even though I know some people who have worked with him and say that he's kind of difficult in certain ways, but that yeah. doesn't even matter. I think that it's making music is difficult. So being difficult is just a symptom. Yeah, uh, but but I mean, like, number one, I don't know if anyone's ever read. It's a pretty legendary letter that he sent to Nirvana when they were negotiating the uh, in utero contract. Have you guys read that letter? I think I, I did it. at one point. I don't remember very many of the specifics of it, though. One of the moments in it that really got me that I've always tried to model myself after Steve on this specific thing, first and foremost, is he said to them, and. So in saying this, artists that might work with me, don't think that I'm not going to ask for points on your record. I'm still going to ask for points on your record. But Steve Albini was much more established and and already kind of a legend due to like the Pixies records and stuff at this right. point. But he said, I don't want points on your record, Nirvana, 
um, and this is talking about in utero, um, and he said, consider me a plumber, pay me for the day's work that I do, and that's what that's all I want. And I and I especially with independent artists, I try to use that mentality. And it, that makes sense to a lot of independent artists when I say like, just we're going to work for a day, yeah. pay me for the day, and then we'll figure out the next thing next. But like, you know, one day at a time yeah. and I'm a plumber. I came over to your house. I fixed the fucking pipes. Pay me for the, my time. Cool. Um, and it's, it's a like, there's something about producers and engineers. Like we have this self-aggrandizing bullshit going on in our minds because we are we we're translators for for musicians. We we help most musicians don't know how to get the sound that they're after. Yeah. But they know what it is and it's really fucking hard to tell somebody what the sound in your head is and actually get that to end up coming out of speakers. And so we're translators. So obviously we like self-aggrandize. We like make ourselves seem way more important than we actually are. But when I think of myself as a plumber and when other people think of me as a plumber, it puts us on some sort of common ground. Um, and that's something that's really important about Steve Albini and the way that he looks at the music business. That definitely didn't answer your question. But, um, <laughs> but uh, Steve, Albini, I mean, Steve Albini, just balls of steel like that in utero record doesn't sound like any record ever the drums yeah. sound they're 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 enormous. They sound like they're in a big room. The room tone of those drums is really ballsy. His 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 drum miking and the rawness of that record for a for a record that um you know, think of Nirvana as a pop act cuz that's what they were right yeah. then, which is so weird. For I and I know it was weird for Kurt and obviously like had some severe psychological effects on him, but like you know, like being a pop act at that moment and making such a raw, garagey sounding record mm -hmm. at that moment in time, that didn't happen. That was like Soundgarden's records sound slick compared to that. Pearl Jam's records obviously yeah, sound 100%. really slick. Because you know, in utero, it was just this big middle finger to everybody at Geffen who wanted Nevermind the sequel. I mean, for them to amazing, take that right? formula, throw it out and completely circumvent it and give everybody something that challenged them that was unlike anything that you were to hear, you know, on on, on Top 40 radio in 91 or 92 or 93. It's unbelievable. In utero was 93, right? Right. I love you guys because you just know. Like, I'm like, <laughs> I think, I'm pretty sure 93, but you're like, yes. Anniversary yeah, that's what it was. every year, same day we Without post a... his anniversary posts. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, just like, and, and yeah, so as engineers, as producers, like, I mean, that's a really hard thing to do. It's a really hard thing to convince an, uh, an artist of. Um, I can name, an, there's this really cool artist out of Philadelphia. It's a band called Ooh La La. They're just releasing, I think they just released a new song today that I didn't oh, cool. produce. But I produced their first record. Check it out. It's really fucking cool. Um, the first record, what the hell is that record called? Um, there's a single on, off of it called like Get Your Ass in That Space Camaro, I think. <laughs> really fucking cool record. I love that. <laughs> but so these guys are awesome. And... Um, but and and Mike uh, w Michael Baker won't be mad at me for talking about this. 
I tried to do a really ballsy drum sound on that record. I had um, the drummer, Mike Petrusco, really legendary, awesome Philly drummer. Um, he played on it, and he, um, I had him tune his snare drum really ringy and trashy, mm-hmm. and then I boosted a lot of more of trashy frequencies on the drum. You've heard some records that sound like a boom, bang, yeah. boom, bang. You know, that was what the snare sounded like, and... Steve Albini got that to happen on a commercial success of a record. Um, Ooh La La fought me on that snare sound, and we ended up taming it pretty hard. The drums mm-hmm. still sound fucking amazing, and it's a great sounding record, and I'm really proud of it. Check it out. Yeah. But I really wanted, especially that song, um, but the whole record, I wanted it, I wanted the snare drum to be a statement. And I got shot down by the artist. Mm-hmm. Um and I, they might have been right, and and there's still that's that's an interesting thing about producing. I don't know if they were right or not, right. and we're never gonna know. I think that the art that we made is fucking phenomenal, and I'm proud of it. Um, uh, but so that I think I might now slightly be getting into answering your question, like Steve, Steve Albini, like managed <laughs> to convince an artist to probably adjust their vision a little bit but also maybe that was kurt and dave and chris's uh vision and he just followed through with it but either way it was a ballsy thing because in that scenario the producer is also a go-between between the a and r of the label right. and the band and that's somebody who i'm sure the a and r was not i actually haven't read up on any of this but i'm sure the a and r wasn't happy with the way that that record sounded um, yeah to, it to, sounds, to put it lightly. <laughs> it sounds like demos in the most beautiful way. And it's the things that I don't know. Like, I love hearing a demo of a band, you know, of a song, of a great legendary song and hearing it in its rawest, shittiest, like recorded on an acetate fucking, like the old Beatles demos where they had the little acetate tape decks or whatever the fuck they had. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like George Harrison's in there strumming All Things Must Pass. Yeah. And it's, it's just unbelievable. The, it's unbelievable. And it's just into his fucking tape deck. No echo on his voice, nothing. You know, and that record, I think, is the closest that we'll probably ever get to like a really raw rock and roll record that mm-hmm. was a fucking commercial success. Yeah. And um and I you know, who knows? I, I'm sure that the band had a lot to do with that vision um, because obviously all fucking visionaries. And then they had a visionary um, producing and behind the console. And that's, that's what happened. And yeah, that's our, that's our responsibility. Like, that's what I was getting at. Our responsibility is to, is an artist says, or usually they don't say, this is what I want. It's just, we sit there and hopefully I have a varied enough musical experience that they can say, they can play their song and they can give me a few things that they say about it. And I can be like, I know, I know what you want. And four months later, they can be listening and be like, yes, this is exactly what I fucking wanted. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. And especially when it's such a ballsy move, like in utero. And it's just like, you know, what a fucking, 
All right, this is officially just a <laughs> Steve Albini dick sucking <laughs> podcast. I love it. Hell yeah. Yes. <laughs> we're covering all the bases. We're talking about grunge. We're talking about Steve Albini. We're roasting Drew. I mean, yes. this is really, this has all of the ingredients yeah, of a, of I need a, a good, killer episode. I need a, one, a good Drew story before we leave from the studio, if you can think of one or that. Okay, well, do you guys know, <laughs> um, know the nickname that I called Drew? I don't think I do. I actually. don't think we do. <laughs> Drewby do. Oh yeah, Drewby Doo. Drewby Doo. I think it's a common nickname for Drews, mm-hmm. but Drew. See, I'm anti-roasting Drew here because I'm sure he doesn't love that nickname. We can lift him up. <laughs> but here's uh, Jenny Lindbergh of um, Warpaint gave him that nickname. Um, really? He talked to you about uh, that a lot. That project. And that was a really fucking cool project. That was a really fun project. Uh, uh, Spring Summer is the name of that record that. Drew and I did. Um, that's a that's a cool one. And um, Jenny Lindbergh. Oh, I can I can give Jenny some love and some hate <laughs> of, on the podcast because I totally produced the record, but Jenny was like, "No, I produced the record," and she's just way more famous than me. So I just had to be like, "Fine, she all right, it. you produced <laughs> the record." We, we all co. The first day, she was like, "We're all co-producing this record," and I was like, "Rad." And I was like, cool. And then she was like, nah, I produced the record. And I was like, Fine. <laughs> I changed my mind. <laughs> I changed my mind. But she's so fucking rad. And uh, yeah, that was a fun one. But Drew got the nickname uh, Drewby Doo during those, which I've learned a lot of Drews have that nickname now. But it's like Scooby Doo, Drewby Doo. Yeah, kind of. Well, yeah, no, it was, a Sco- it was definitely a Scooby Doo. Yeah. <laughs> but it was just like she just started calling him that one day and none of us even questioned it. And all of a sudden it was like, Nice. And I just, I don't know. Nobody famous ever gave me a fucking nickname. <laughs> <laughs> Fucked up. I know. That's, um, that's, that's egregious right there. Yeah, Drew's in there for fucking a few weeks, and all of a sudden, he's got a Jenny, nickname. Jenny 13's calling him Drewby Doo. Hell yeah. It's good. No, that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, oh, man. Jenny's, I, I like that. I'm glad I put that on the record. Jenny's going to fucking murder me over this if she hears it. <laughs> Let's so hope hopefully she, she, hopes hears, she it. hears it. Yeah, that's what we're after. We yeah. have to kill her sound bites exactly. that are going to get people in trouble. <laughs> yes, that's and how that's, you make I it. Mean, it's not about consistency. It's just about that's baiting the best people. Part of making a podcast, right, is that you get to. Yeah. Is is this a podcast or a vodcast? Do you guys do video? It's both, actually. We do both. Okay. Yeah. So we release we release the audio version on all of the uh, the podcast uh, normal sites, and then we we have a YouTube page where we throw up the uh, and yes, the audio we know we, we need to get out external well. cameras. That's what Drew's been telling us. He's like, we gotta get you cameras and lighting. So we're working on that too. <laughs> yeah, that's the next. You phase. know what though? I mean, like I'm thi- I'm looking like <laughs> I, you know, uh, no, I don't think you do. I I I think. There we go. I don't know. There's so many. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as a like, I love music, but I don't really like. So in my normal life, I try to like when I'm not in the studio, my normal life, when I'm not in the studio, I don't listen much to music. And that's I don't what Drew really... said when he was working. Yeah, he said the yeah. same thing. Um, so I watch and listen to a lot of like comedy podcasts and vodcasts. And mm. I forget the name of the one that Kyle Kinane's always on. But it's so good, and it looks like shit, and like yeah. who cares, you yeah. know? Like, yeah. it's good. Like, if the content's good, I think people, especially in this TikTok generation, I think people are getting used to seeing just like shitty FaceTime videos of people talking right. into 
like consumer level microphones and you know just giving you interesting content i think the world is the world's ready for it I love this. Um, so we we officially have your endorsement to not change a goddamn yes. thing. <laughs> you you have a uh, successful Los Angeles producer engineer telling you, no good mics, no new cameras. You hear that, Drewby? Do <laughs> you hear that? You hear that, that weed whacker in the back? Keep it in. Yeah, yeah exactly. Keep that Turn in. it up. Keep it in. That's, Turn up that's the weed Philly. whacker, Drew. That's Philly, baby. You know, you know, it's like they say in Always Sunny. We have our ways, and we're dug in, and we're not changing. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. We need the weed whackers all day long. <laughs> this is absolutely amazing. I cannot think of a better way to uh, to close this down than that final tidbit. We're digging in, um, Tim. This was so so much fun. Uh, Chris, you know, to have right these back at you, Ethan. So yeah. much fun. This was amazing. This was great. I'm really really thankful that you were able to come on, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as uh, I know I did. I did. I got a little stressed out with the weed whacker, but I think that's I'm okay right, though, now. That's all right, though, because that's Philly. That's what it's about. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. They'll be fine. I'm sure the listeners will be fine. And if you guys have made it to the end of this, uh, thank you. And uh, <laughs> yeah, again, thank you very much, Never, not, Never done with the self-deprecation. No. That's no. 215 for life. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One last punch thrown in there at ourselves. We'll do it. We're going to do it in the pre and the post roll, too, so always but hell yeah all right thank you again rock and roll tim appreciate you guys thank you fuck yeah fuck yeah take it easy y'all and there we have it a lovely conversation with tim sonnefeld uh thank you so much tim once again for coming on um that was that was a lot of fun uh to be able to do that and um it's kind of one of those things where I think the hardest part of the interview process is just getting people, getting schedules to line up. But, uh, you know, Tim was great. He was able to move some things around and, uh, you know, get on the podcast, which was really, really fun. I'm, I'm happy that we were able to share this conversation with everybody because, um, you know, we really, really enjoyed it. So thank you once again, Tim, uh, for taking the time. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, I think every um, interview we've done has ex- exceeded expectations. Um, it always is a lot more fun than kind of we expect and more energizing and usually the product uh, is is really fun to listen to it's a lot so, more fun than just talking to you ethan yeah, I'm tired of that shit yeah i know this <laughs> duo this dialogue is not enough yeah it's awful it's really really terrible <laughs> luckily that's why we have other people come in so <laughs> exactly <clears throat> but yeah it was it was really solid i mean it's just it's just great so happy to yeah. have him as a friend now and have him on our side hopefully and uh Hope, look forward to uh, getting out to L.A. again and, and breaking bread with him. That sounds like a good time. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, that's skyrocketed to the top of the list when we make it back to L.A. Hopefully, uh, mm-hmm. I think we can make a 2023 trip out there at some point. That would oh, yeah. be good. Yeah, we got to get back there. But, uh, yeah, that'll uh, that'll just about do it for the, uh, the informational portion of the podcast. Um, as we mentioned at the top of the show, if you'd like to support us, you can view the show notes for all of the – uh, relevant links uh, as to how to do that. You can subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a review if you're able to, um, go purchase some merchandise. A um, little late for the holidays now, but New Year's gift, uh, January gift, February gift for the Grunge Bible fan in your life because right. I know I know there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have to keep the people happy. And uh, you know, additionally, the Patreon is always open and welcoming of new individuals who want to support us. So 
Uh, thank yep. you in advance. Uh, you know, we've had a lot of people come and go over the years, but it all helps. And I'm all, I'm thankful for all of them. Yeah. And we're, we just got word from our producer that, uh, we have a campaign for new microphones. So we that's, do. The, <laughs> that's cap, the capital campaign is officially underway. We're getting strict uh, orders from the producer that we need new, new microphone. Uh, it's their, of course, extremely, extremely expensive. So, yep. so we're raising funds. So if you want to help make that dream, a don't reality, be mad at us. Blame drew. Uh, that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not, it's, us. it's never our fault. It's if, never yeah, our fault. We would do it with uh, AirPods, you know, if it was not a big deal, but, uh, yeah. we want the best. Apparently product. it's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. It's a very um, big deal. But yeah, shout out to Drew uh, for one, just doing great work, always being there for us and also setting us up with this interview. Um, props to you. You're doing a great job there. Absolutely. I echo all of those statements. So before we go, uh, we'd like to um, issue the penultimate song of the week uh, selections of 2022. That's right. We're getting yeah. towards the end. We are. Um, we have we have one more week. And next week, as we mentioned uh, last week, uh, the episode coming out on the 26th is a very special episode. So looking forward to that one. I, it's a surprise. We, it's a, yeah, it's a surprise. It's a, it's a, it's a Christmas, it's a Christmas present. Pre- it is a Christmas present. I mean, yeah. it's parallel to when you come down, you get to see your first bike, you know, mm-hmm. under the tree, maybe. It's got a nice or, bow on it. Exactly. Yeah, or something, something of that, you know. Something like that. It's gonna be so. great. But Ethan, do you have a, do you have any song? Yeah, I do. Do I have any song? I do. I have. I- <laughs> yeah, I was I was gonna finish that <laughs> sentence, but I I stopped because I'm like I was gonna say, do you have any songs you would like to share with us? But you only share one song, so grammatically right. that didn't make sense. So I just decided to cut it. You knew what I meant. And I was like, it's not worth it. I'm but out. I already I just explained it, so I guess it was worth it. But I don't know, man. It's been a long know. week. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, a lot, lot of, lot of recording. You know, a lot of, yeah, lot of work lot, going on. A lot of on. traffic. <laughs> a late night last night, I guess. Yeah, burning the midnight oil. It's never so, easy. Now, uh, my song is a song that came up. The EP is a new EP dropped uh, maybe a month ago or something like that. I'm not sure, but in 2022, and I know that you listened to him. And this is I, I mean, this is kind of my first. I think this was my first listen to him. Um, I don't think I really knew much of his other stuff, but it's Jack K's. He released oh, yes. his EP uh, Cessation, I believe. It's mm-hmm. C-E-S, so Cessation. And the song was Wish You Well that came up. And it's really good. I like it's, that song. It's yeah. like I think it's like two and a half minutes maybe. And I remember mm-hmm. the first time I listened to it, you know, I clicked it and it was one of those, um, you know, when you click into a song, sometimes it just goes repeat. And mm-hmm. I listened to it, and it just kept going. And I didn't realize that the song restarted. Yeah. And and I was like, man, I was like, this song is like so good. And I was like, how long is it? And I was like, oh wait, like I'm definitely yeah, on like on my third, yeah, third or four three. here. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just a great song. He's got an awesome voice that is just unique, and it's just a really good, um, you know, acoustic song, and, and yeah, very, very awesome. well done by him. And and it was really good. So I got into that that EP a little bit, and it's. It's really solid, but that's definitely my favorite of, of the uh, favorite of his catalog for now. Great, yeah, yeah. Jack Jack Hayes is really awesome, and if I remember correctly, uh, he's a Song of the Week alumnus. I think I picked um, Middle of the End um, mm. sometime yeah, earlier yeah, yeah. That's in the right. summer. Yeah, really, really good song. But that's right. Great. I know that song too. Yeah, yeah really, really talented, and um, you know, kind of just starting out. It's one of those artists that you know, if Jack Hayes is coming through my area, it's like the perfect time to be able to go see them and have a special night. Um, you know at a small, small venue because artists like this, 
Um, when they hook you immediately, you got to start the clock in your head of before, you know, they start playing bigger and bigger shows and you can kind of, um, you know, strike get it out to get that intimate, that cool moment. So, uh, yeah, Jack Case is one of them that I would love to uh, love to see kind of uh, retroactively adding to my wish list uh, from last week's episode. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd love to see Jack Case in 2023. So thank you for uh, reminding me. Um, oh, yeah. of, of that EP. Uh, yeah, uh, man. It's been a little bit since I listened to it, so I appreciate that. And it's a very worthy entry into the Song of the Week playlist. Right, right. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good one. Yeah. Uh, your turn. Yeah, it is my turn. Um, so there's not really anything that's like super winding my clock right now. So I, normally uh, the protocol for me is I Pearl just Jam. go to... <laughs> it's not Pearl Jam. <laughs> It's not Pearl Jam. Um, it's actually um, it's just Chains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a song called "Man in the Box." Uh, it's, a, it's a deep uh, cut wood? From, from their Is first it? album. Dude, I'm so fucking tired of the wood thing. I really, I really, we really need. We should just stop doing that. Same old trip. I mean. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's been nice that part, for like three years now. The nice Fuck. part is, like, I mean, we did it. It's done. We had a really nice run. So now we don't need to do it every day because mm-hmm. the luster, I think, has worn off with the people too. I mean, so but Dude, like we the can, people still love it though. It's fucked. Like every Monday, they're like, "Thank you, Grunge Bible." I'm like, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> like if I missed, like, we if I take, missed a Monday. Yeah, but you could come back with it like in two weeks later, and I think people oh, would be I'm just sure. ex- like like people will always remember that with the page now. That's what I mean. Like it, yeah. it's it's stuck, which is what we, I guess, wanted. So. I, I guess I mean we were just trolling in the beginning. We weren't trying to make this anything, but people funny, hated the, it to start. Yeah, there's, yeah, it's funny. There's another grunge page that kind of copied this, and they do um instead of uh, we do into the flood, we do wood on Mondays. They do um interstate love song sundays so really yeah i guess uh imitation is the sincerest form of flattery so i feel relatively flattered yeah i fucking hate that shit (laughs) i hate it it's terrible i hate that yeah so um i guess um you know for a lack of brevity none of those songs that i just mentioned my song of the week this is just a song that's on a playlist that i've been listening to a little bit lately um we're gonna go back to 1970 and uh, Fleetwood Mac's album Kiln House, and uh, the song is called Station Man. So if you're not super familiar with Fleetwood Mac, a lot of their earlier stuff, I believe it was with Peter Green, he was kind of the head at the time, super bluesy, like really, really bluesy, bluesy stuff. This was before Lindsey Buckingham and uh, Stevie Nicks joined Fleetwood Mac, but um, Station Man was a song... um, I think I first discovered it on the day that I discovered the legend of the big beat, um, <laughs> buddy miles and dreams the big beat and is back. The big beat is back. Yeah. So station, man, it's just a great song to kind of, you know, get yourself into that alternative mindset and, uh, you know, just kind of let it, let it take you where it needs to go. So I'm going to listen to that song. this weekend. Yeah. Station man, dude, Fleetwood Mac. It's uh 52 years old, but it's still, Still hits the spot. So I don't know if we've had Fleetwood Mac on the uh, song of the week list or not. Um, so there's no better time than now. But, uh, you know, sorry, Lindsay and Stevie, you're not you're not making the list this time. Yeah, not technically. <laughs> better luck <and> next year. <laughs> you know who's not making the list? Who's that? John Bon Jovi. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, fuck, fuck John Bon Jovi. If you're, if you're still listening at the end of the pod, you get to hear straight from Chris and I's mouth that we do not endorse John Bon Jovi. <laughs> we fuck fucking that. hate John Bon Jovi. Um, Sometimes yeah. you need to, you know, it's like my dad the once gloves said, are off. like, 
my dad says like you can't support everybody and you know no, what you can't. <laughs> I can't do it anymore I'm, I'm not gonna act like it either if, if, if like I'm if, not living if, on a prayer no not not at <laughs> I'm all out. I'm not riding on a steel horse it's <laughs> it's one of those things where like honestly my feelings for John Bon Jovi are so strong and so negative that if I was if I was tasked with choosing between like hey you can support somebody or you can just rail on John Bon Jovi. I'm going to rail on John Bon Jovi. Like they, yeah. whoever, whoever I could support, they can get my support the next day. But now, yeah. fuck John bon all my All my energy is going into this. And it's one of those things where yeah. I'm just, like, if you ask me why, I'm just so riled up and so hot that I can't come up with a reason. Other it doesn't than matter I why. <laughs> yeah. I, I hate him so much. I just, it like, my, I'm just clouded. You know, yeah, there's so it's much terrible. Going I'm not on. thinking just, clearly. The only thing that I know is that I hate John Bon Jovi. <laughs> That's it. I would. Oh man, just yeah, like, I'm. Just I'm, I'm just seeing. Hot. I'm just seeing red everywhere except like right in my pupils. I see see John Bon Jovi's face, and I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm upset. I just want to punch it, you know. It's terrible, but yeah. Uh, so that's that's everybody's reward for uh, you know yeah. check staying on through the end of the episode. That yeah, that's that, how that we finished off, this episode. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> that went, exactly that went how off the rails pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Well, we needed that. We need some color. Yeah, I, you know. I, we I, feel, need I feel better now. Yeah. Yeah. So do I. Anyway, so thank you everybody for yeah, listening. <laughs> thank you. It's been a, it's been a wonderful time, and uh, we will be back next week with the most important episode of the year, honestly, ever. I think of the, of the podcast's history. Yes. So it will. It is a a must listen, a do not miss. So mark your calendars, put those notifications on, download whatever, because you're gonna yeah. want to hear it. Yeah. Make sure your post notifications <laughs> are enabled. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, All right, everybody. We'll see you next week. All right. See ya. Fuck Bon Jovi. Fuck John Bon Jovi. (laughs) (laughs) See ya. See you later.